think like with everything, it just gets better with practice. So as we become practitioners of contemplative practices that help cultivate mindfulness, we are more quickly able to slow our minds down so that we can respond instead of react. Welcome to Design to Be Conversation, presented by Design to Be and hosted by Design to Be founder and CEO, me, Rachel Weissman. Design to Be is a community that elevates designers to become empowered, educated, and effective using EQ-based tools and practices. In this show, I have conversations with design leaders about how investing in their EQ has impacted their design career. In today's episode, I speak with Irene Ah. Irene is the design partner at Coastal Ventures, where she works with startup CEOs. She is dedicated to raising the strategic value of design and user research within software companies. Having built and led the entire user experience and design teams at Google, Yahoo, and Udacity. Irene teaches yoga at Avalon Yoga Center in Palo Alto. She has authored the definitive O'Reilly book, Design in Venture Capital, and popular essays found on Medium. Irene has been featured on several publications like Wired Magazine, Fast Company, Communication Arts, and on the cover of Mindful Magazine. We dive into different elements of EQ as it relates to you becoming a more effective designer, how EQ plays a large part in growing your design career, navigating the design process challenges, and how practicing mindfulness will make you a better designer. Welcome, Irene, to the show. Thanks for having me. Welcome, everyone. And when we were chatting a bit over video before and over email of, okay, so what's the topic we should discuss today? I loved your idea of saying, let's go a bit more broad. And this is a new style that we've had for an episode where in previous episodes, it's been more focused on a specific topic, but I love that we've taken a new approach to focus on what questions does the community have? So thank you all for inputting a bunch of questions, and that's going to be the format that we're going to use to guide our conversation today. And we're going to take about 10 or so minutes at the end. So if anyone listening has any further questions, we're going to go through that as well. So, and this live community recording is a bit different. So the first hour, I'm going to be chatting with Irene and you folks are going to be typing in your questions through chat that we'll dive into at the end. And then the second, the last half hour, um, we're going to be able to go into breakout rooms and discuss all that you learned and ask each other questions and connect with each other. At the way end, at the last minutes, tomorrow with Design to Be, we are announcing something super exciting. And the folks that stay until the end will be the first to know and have first access to this new offering. So enough rambling from me. So diving into our first questions. So the first question that we got from a designer said, how can designers who desire fast growth chart their own path? Hmm. I think the key there is to stay curious, have fun and learn. In terms of career planning and things like that, I've never been one to kind of plan top down and 
think about where do I want to be in 10 years or things like that. I just feel like life moves too quickly to plan that far ahead. You know, like if I had planned my career top down, starting from high school, I would have missed out on the internet because back then your choices were either be a doctor or a lawyer or something. You know, I was like a rebel for studying engineering. (laughs) So along the way, I've never really had like a long-term plan, but I've always followed my heart and tried to stay connected to what is it that brings me joy and what can I be doing where I can be learning something while having fun. And I think that when you have all those ingredients in the mix, you will learn a lot faster and you'll be a lot happier. You'll be more effective. And as a result, you'll be able to chart a really nice path for yourself. So just staying curious. Another thing that I think is really important is to say yes to opportunities. Like opportunities will come your way and they might be unexpected or different, but that's really an invitation from the world where some entity sees that you have something to offer that is needed. And so I think it's really interesting to follow that. Um, Of course, we can't say yes to everything. So it's a balance. You don't want to overextend yourself. But where there is an opportunity that arises that might give you a chance to stretch and grow, then it's worth following that at least for a, a little while to see where that takes you. In terms of choosing like an organization such as a company to work with, Where you see an organization growing, there will be career growth. So like if a company is kind of stagnant and not really going anywhere, there probably aren't going to be many new and interesting opportunities for you within that company where the company is growing and the leadership is curious and interested and kind of has a lot of ideas for what could be done, then there's going to be career growth there. So follow the right organization. Look at how the organization thinks. Do they want entrepreneurial types who think creatively to solve problems and change things? Or are they really just looking for somebody who's going to maintain the status quo? So, you know, those are, those are a few things to look for. Yeah, I love, I love that. I feel like the leaning into curiosity and being aware of this constant feedback loop for me has been so pivotal in, in my career to making these decisions of, okay, does this feel good? Uh, Yeah, no, not so much. Okay, I learned what not to do. (laughs) And like, okay, let's refine, let's pivot. And being aware of the values of different organizations that you're interested in and how you can connect and move forward with those people and interact in that way. Yeah, that, that very, very much resonates with me as well. So thank you for sharing. So the next question we have is, how have you dealt with any resistance from colleagues or superiors to a design EQ. So I'm a firm believer in the value of this approach, but I face great skepticism when I try to integrate these practices into my work projects. Hmm. My question is like, what does design EQ mean? To me, what we're really talking about is maybe mindfulness or awareness or presence. I think like in the best case, you don't have to wear your practices on your sleeve or be too evangelical about what you do to strengthen or cultivate your emotional intelligence. Like in the worst case, it might come across as a little bit woo-woo or out there, people just not interested. But I think the best thing that you can do is to do the work, to do the practice yourself. And over time, it it will change your being. It will change your mind. It will change your perspective and how you relate to the world and to others. And in doing so, 
you will affect others around you. And in the best case, you will inspire others just with your amazing awareness and your ability to be present in any kind of situation and to deal with any difficult circumstance. So, you know, you don't have to actively talk about it or brag about it or evangelize it. It's just by being the best person that you can be, you may inspire others to do the same. And I think that's, that's the best way to be in the world. That's beautiful. I'm, I'm not, I have nothing else to add there. So moving on to the next question, how, how to measure your design. So and maybe we can think about this in terms of taking an EQ lens here of uh, how to measure your own emotions, or maybe we can take more of like a tactical, like measure your design approach. <laughs> so whoever submitted the question is happy. But then I'm, I'm also curious, is there a way to, going back to the question before, so there is the lens of let's lead by example, and let's put these practices into our own minds and hearts. And then people will see, okay, they're really aware and they're collaborating incredibly. And people want to work with them. Okay, I kind of want that. Yeah, sure. And then there's the other lens of, okay, how can we actually prove that <laughs> this is effective, <laughs> which is challenging. Yeah, it is. It's hard to draw a direct line, and I'm not necessarily sure that it's necessary. You know, at a, at a personal level, when we are aware and present, we just move through the world more joyfully, and we feel more connected to the world around us, which I believe makes us more effective and better designers because we feel greater empathy and a closer connection to the people that we're serving, which in most cases is our target users. But it's also like the other people we're serving around us are the people we're collaborating with, for example. And when we are creating with joy and we're collaborating effectively with other people, hopefully the outcomes will be better. And I really feel like whatever we're making, it's a manifestation of our internal state. Like if you've ever seen something that's poorly designed, you feel anxiety, you feel frustration. And it's probably because that was the energy that went into the creation of that experience or that product. And then conversely, when we experience something delightful, like when we see beauty in the world, or when we're interacting with a product or a service that's just like everything comes together and it's perfect. That's because all the cylinders were firing in the creation of that product or that experience or that service. And so what we make is a reflection of our internal state. And when we are interacting with something, we are inheriting the energy that went into the creation of that thing. Just as an example, like if you think about an experience that left you really frustrated and it made you sad, <laughs> I think non-designers will often blame the designers of that poorly designed product or experience, right? But I think we as designers understand that what went into the creation of that was not just the designer's perspective, but everything else that went into that, which is poor talent or lack of strategy, bad process, whatever. And so like design is kind of the canary in the coal mine. It's a manifestation of all the collective energy that went into the creation of that. So that makes it really hard to measure design. I think that was the original question. <laughs> design really is about having a point of view. And you can't evaluate the success of a design unless you know what you stand for. 
And it really comes down to like design principles. Like what is the point of view? What are the things that you care about? What are the things you value? And you're making decisions against that point of view. So once you have clearly defined principles, then you can evaluate your designs against how successfully you've delivered on those principles. So I'll just give a couple of examples. Like in the world of massive online open courseware, you know, we had Udacity with Coursera, and there was considerable debate within the company at Udacity around what made for a successful user experience. On one hand, we had data that showed to us that when you move people through a class as a cohort and their deadlines and things like that, the completion rate is a lot higher. But our founder, Sebastian Thrun, felt very strongly that we should support a learning experience that allowed people to learn at their own pace because we had users who were going to regular school at the same time, or maybe they were working professionals or busy moms or whatever. And so he felt like success meant that an experience allowed people to learn at their own pace. And so it just changed our definition of success, like the conventional definition of success for massive online open courseware was completion rate. But he kind of changed the success metric because he was very principled about this notion that we should have asynchronous learning. So like, is a design good or bad? Well, it's hard to evaluate that unless you know what you stand for. So we really had to clarify for ourselves as a company what we stood for in order to make the right decisions for the product to deliver on this on this value of being able to work at your own pace. So hopefully that makes sense and clarifies things. Another example is like at Yahoo and at Google, the founders at both of those companies cared very deeply about creating an experience that was performant. They understood that if the sites were slow, then people would leave and they would get frustrated with the experience and go somewhere else. And so in the early days of Yahoo and at Google, a lot of people felt like these websites were not well-designed because they weren't pretty. There wasn't a lot of adornment. There wasn't a lot of color or rounded corners or images or things like that, right? The conventional perception of design being that design is about making things pretty. But design is also about the functionality and the experience that's delivered. And so I would argue that Yahoo and Google were both very much designed and very successfully designed because their number one principle at the time was fast. And all the decisions made around the interface design and and beyond were about creating an optimal performant experience. And that's why for both companies in the very early days, you know, it was mostly text against a a white background and the content was really the interface. And so like, how do you measure the success of the design? Well, it's hard to measure the success of either design if you don't know what either company stands for, what they value. But once you understand that they were really optimizing for creating a fast experience, then you, you start to see like, oh, this spare Spartan design is actually really successful because the number one design principle was speed, was fast. I love what you were saying because I feel like it also relates to the first question that we had of there are values and an awareness for ourselves and how we can craft our own career path. And then there's also the values that we use to craft a design. And the more awareness that we have on the the dual sides of the coin, 
one, the happier we'll be (laughs) and the more joy that we'll craft in our careers, but then ultimately design products where we have an awareness of, okay, this is successful because I'm aware of how I'm measuring this. What are the principles that are guiding this? What are my own values that are making me even here in the first place? (laughs) And ultimately, to your point, understand uh, like why we're making what we're making. And although that (laughs) what you were saying early on in the Google days of, okay, it was just text, which was a perfect design. (laughs) (laughs) That makes complete sense because it solved the problem based on the set of goals and values. What are the top three things to know about EQ? This is a very interesting question. And I was just talking to Rachel before everybody signed on. I read Daniel Goleman's book on emotional intelligence like decades ago when it was first published and haven't really touched it in many years. So I would say for the definitive top three things to know, I would refer you to that book. To me, emotional intelligence is not a cognitive, like to know EQ is not a cognitive kind of understanding. It's a feeling kind of understanding. It's a way of relating to yourself and to the people around you and to the broader world. And so I I would say like, rather than top three things to know, it's like the top things to do in order to cultivate that feeling. And so what might that be? There are a lot of different techniques for cultivating awareness, which in turn helps build all the other great skills that come with EQ, like empathy and understanding and love, connection, joy. I could talk about a few of my favorite techniques. And the simplest one really is just to focus on the breath. And that is a very straightforward tool because it's accessible and it's healthy for you, uh, healthy for the body and healthy for the mind. And it instantly calms you down so that it brings you into the moment. Another favorite tool or technique is just a gratitude practice, reminding yourself every day of what you have to be grateful for, whatever the blessings are. And it may sound cliche, but it's incredibly effective, especially during these crazy pandemic times where we feel so much loss. I think it's especially helpful and important to take some time every day to reflect on what the good things are. And I I do believe that for every for everything, there is always a duality. There's always a flip side. There's a good and a bad that comes with everything. And so gratitude practice may also include cultivating the skills, like the ability to see the flip side of something that you may initially perceive as a negative and, and turn it into a positive. What's the benefit or what's the advantage? What's the plus in this? And how can I amplify that? So, so those are amongst the the practices that I engage in daily and have really helped open my heart and, and help me stay grounded and connected to what's happening. We're going to take a short break to hear an exciting update from Design to Be. Design to Be is excited to offer Design to Be training, an eight-week remote design EQ training program. We are bringing together the next generation of leading designers who seek to become more effective in their role and ultimately craft a career that is filled with meaning and purpose. 
We are fusing authentic community, inspirational speakers, and actionable techniques to uplevel your design career. Head to designtobe.com slash training to learn more and apply. Applications are now open and close April 15th, but students will be accepted on a rolling basis, so be sure to apply early to secure your spot. Now, back to the show. From my various like research, trainings, <laughs> all different things, if you're going to take one thing away about emotional intelligence, and I feel like you very much alluded to this, Irene, is uh, the foundation is uh, self-awareness. And upon investing in that self-awareness, whether it be through the breath or through other kinds of awareness practices, really opens up the gate to being able to manage your emotions more effectively, being able to be more aware of others, being able to build relationships in a more true and authentic way. And I love what you were alluding to with the gratitude practice of the more that we can practice gratitude, it fills up our cup of resilience. So when things look in the, in the vein of design, the, the use case that always sticks out to me was when I was a junior designer being in design crit and then people just like ripping apart my design. And I didn't have the resilience at the time to navigate that and have the authentic communication skills to understand, okay, what, what can I do here? Mm-hmm. And and it's scary. It's scary. It's nerve wracking to understand, okay, what are these people's different intent? Why are they giving me this feedback? And why? Are, what are they saying about my design? And not being able to take it so personally. <laughs> and the, the gratitude practice is so key there uh, with creating a firmer foundation. So you're not as swayed by what people think this is a design process where it's actually going in a million different directions. Actually, I think about this a lot with with the respect to design and this notion that there's a duality to everything. There's a plus and a negative to everything. And especially in design, there's always trade-offs that we're negotiating because if you try to have it all, then you end up with a very confused, incoherent, cluttered design. Uh, so when we simplify, we're inevitably going to be making trade-offs and giving up something. But what's interesting about that is that it creates an opportunity to amplify what's good about that. I mean, as an example, and this is just a very simple example to, to illustrate because it's hopefully something everybody can relate to. But like when I was uh, working on the design of my house, we wanted an open floor plan. We wanted windows everywhere. And so it, it left us without a lot of wall space. <laughs> Um, uh, which is good because we didn't want a lot of blank walls, but then it's like, there's no place to hang art, uh, no place for a bookshelf or whatever. There was one place in the house where it was like unavoidable. We had to have a narrow three foot wide hallway that connected the girls' bedrooms to their bathroom. And it was like dark because there wasn't an opportunity to put windows there because it was right in the center of the house. And that's where we decided to put a huge library wall. Uh, so we, we turned this negative into a positive and it actually solved this other problem we had, which is like, where are we going to put all my books? Yeah. I, I think anytime there's a, a trade-off, can you find what's positive about it and then amplify it, make that 
great and amazing. Yeah, the the hope and optimism are really key things to like weave in there to cultivate that resilience. So what are things you do to make sure your mindful design, something thoughtful and unhurried, can remain mindful amidst the speed and velocity, usually in a startup? Yeah. To me, mindful design is about the quality of attention that is paid to the act of designing, like when you're in the midst of designing and to the actual design. So like the design details. So it definitely helps to have extra time in order to pay attention, but it's more about how we pay attention when we're doing the work that makes it mindful. So you can, you can have like all the time in the world for a project and still not be mindful. Right. (laughs) So it helps to have that extra time, but having that extra time doesn't necessarily make you more mindful. And then conversely, not having the time does not mean that you cannot be mindful. (laughs) I think like with everything, it just gets better with practice. So as we become practitioners of contemplative practices that help cultivate mindfulness, we are more quickly able to slow our minds down so that we can respond instead of react. And so instead of a knee-jerk reaction to a stakeholder who gives directional feedback, like I don't want gray text or I don't like, I don't want images, you know, whatever. It's like mindless design might be just like, okay, the boss said he didn't want any images, so I'm not going to have any images. Or the boss said he didn't want gray text, so I'm not going to put gray text. Or she doesn't want gray text. This is a real story too, actually. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, so mindful design would be to have the wherewithal to slow down. And instead of executing on the direction is to, to ask why. Why in order to understand the motivation behind the feedback. So like in the case of, I don't want any images on my website, what was really the intention behind that was that, oh, well, he actually, the CEO didn't want his website to look like everybody else's. And he saw that all his competitors had the same prosaic headshots and he did not want to look like everybody else. So there it's like, oh, we're popping up a level and we're understanding the intention. You know, if we, if we had just like delivered on that edict, we would not have taken the time to understand the intention and and ultimately we would not have delivered on what that CEO really wanted. So, so with, with an understanding, there's just more room for negotiation and there's a clearer path towards achieving everybody's goals. Only a couple, a couple things that I'd add and it very much alluding to everything that you're talking about. Whenever I talk to people about awareness, it's that space between like what happened and your decision And it creates just this tiny little space where you can make a choice of, okay, instead of just reacting based on, in in your example, exactly what the feedback was, okay, let's do it. How can I cultivate a bit more empathy for that person who possibly gave me that feedback to, and I feel like this goes back to the first question again, to lead with more curiosity, which can open up that awareness to then dive into, okay, oh, I do have a bit more clarity of mind. Okay, that's cool. Okay, maybe I'm not just going to run into the next thing and then do the next. Okay, maybe I can take a breath. And even though the startup is doing this and doing this, that's okay. Yeah, so much of uh, what it takes to design well is really about listening. It's about listening to your stakeholders or collaborators to understand like if there are objections, 
what really are the objections? Because there is most likely common ground and they are just bringing in some feedback or perspective that's just going to make the design ultimately better. And even if it doesn't, just the negotiation and the act of listening and helping people feel heard can sometimes just lead to some resolution because you can agree to disagree and move forward. So listening is so key. And I I do think that that's one of the top skills that designers need in order to be successful. You're listening to your stakeholders, you're listening to your users, listening to yourself too, that inner voice around like, is this really good or not? Yeah. Yeah. The communication, the both explaining and persuading and the listening to yourself and others is so important. Yeah. Sorry. I just want to chime in. Adam Grant has a new book. It's called Think Again. I think I haven't read it, but I've heard him on many podcasts, but he talks about how like when you encounter somebody who disagrees with you, like say like they're an anti-vaxxer and you're a pro-vaccine or whatever, like rather than try to convince them that they're wrong and poke holes in their logic and things like that, it's far more effective to just sit down and ask them why. Why are they anti-vaccine? What are they concerned about? And by asking a series of questions, then they start to feel heard. They start to explain more. And then there's a there's like a respectful exchange between two perspectives that actually is more effective at creating an opening for inquiry on the person's part. And then they start to like, maybe I should be thinking about this in a different way or whatever. And so it's the same kind of dynamic, I think, that needs to take place between designers and you know whoever they're working with. Yeah. All people want is to be seen and heard. And no matter if it's your in your design or personal or or what have you, I love the leading with the the why instead of telling. That's amazing. Thank you. What's the future of work for product and UX design? So like what does the future of work look like for designers, maybe? Let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting to see, like, I think COVID has kind of accelerated whatever was going to happen, you know, whether it's in particular industries or with education or restaurants or whatever, like it's just accelerated everything by 10 years and it's forced us to move into the future a lot faster. I think there's going to be a lot more remote work and it will mean more about working across time zones and you know, languages more so than flying across the world to collaborate with clients or stakeholders or team members. I think white collar work is going to move very quickly into the gig economy um, as it already is, has started to. So we may start to see more like specialists freelancing and consulting and kind of being their own boss. I think we'll be using a lot more collaboration tools for design. So like Miro and Figma I've talked to a number of design leaders who felt like collaboration and creativity was actually augmented during COVID because of these collaboration tools. And in my own personal experience, I have found that having everybody online is an incredible equalizer where now we are forced to be more deliberate and disciplined about refereeing and facilitating. And so it means that perhaps people who in the past were more silent voices, suddenly there's a a level playing field. And that means that those who used to be less heard or less visible have a chance to be as visible or as heard as other people because we're all just little boxes on the screen or we're all just little arrows floating around on the Figma thing or we're all mediating our brainstorms with sticky notes, which everybody can create, you know, things like that. So 
it's an interesting time. And of course, this is my own positive, optimistic kind of perspective. So I, 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 I like to focus on like what's great about working remotely and working from home and, you know, the consequences of being, you know, in this pandemic, what's good about it and how can we amplify it? And I, I think that some of those qualities that I've just described have actually been really positive for some designers. Yeah, I felt like the, I, com- I completely agree where I felt, I feel like the world was going towards remote <laughs> and uh, COVID very much expedited that. And it, to the point of like collaboration and that level playing field, I think it, it's an amazing opportunity for, I remember when sometimes like I would be remote, but there'd be other folks in the room and just trying to get a word in. But it is beautiful that this like level playing field has been created, which hopefully empowers folks to speak their voice and be more authentic and show up to work in a way that feels more true to them, whether they're wearing pajama bottoms or actual jeans. (laughs) How should designers handle burnout in this fast-paced industry? Any tips or advice would be appreciated. You have to take care of yourself first. It's kind of like the oxygen mask on the airplane. You know, they tell you to put your own oxygen mask on before you help anybody else. So like if you're not taking care of yourself, then it's going to be harder to be fully present and aware and happy and joyful when you're collaborating with other people, which is not going to serve anybody. So know what fills your cup. That's going to be different for everyone. For me, it's movement and it's eating well, you know, so I focus on those things. I know for other people, it's about connecting with other people in real life, which is really hard during COVID. So, but they have found ways to do that in their own way that is safe. So whatever nourishes you, I think it's important to know what that is and then to make time every day for, for that. You know, I think another one is sleep, like sleep above everything else, like make sure you get enough sleep. And even if that's at the expense of something else, that's a, a key one to pay attention to. The putting yourself first. Um, I feel like I've had this conversation with many different people, whether it be like students or friends or whomever, where it it's hard for some people to wrap their head around where it's like, but I want to show up for others. I want to show up for my kids. I want to show up for my family. I want to show up for my friends. Like, what do you, what do you mean? (laughs) And uh, Like the way that we can fully show up for those people is if we first show up for ourselves. And, uh, and I, I love what you said about the, the sleep I've been sleeping like almost eight hours every night for the past few weeks, at least, which is so new for me. I was at like a five, six hour mark for quite a while and uh, I'm loving this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, talk about amplifying the positive. You know, one nice thing about having to teleport from one meeting to another is that I get to teleport from one meeting to another, which means I'm not spending a lot of time commuting from one thing to another. And that found time means that I can do a lap around the block before my, you know, in between meetings, things like that. So yeah, I, I, I'd like to celebrate that I don't have the things that I used to have (laughs) and, you know, fill that time with things that, that nourish me. Yeah. The the only thing that I would add here, and I feel like this goes back to some con- some of the conversation that we were having earlier about values and awareness of being aware of 
what's draining you and what's filling up your cup. Because I've been in like many jobs where there's just certain tasks that I do just do not enjoy doing. <laughs> and I notice after doing those tasks, I'm just so exhausted. And of course, there are certain tasks that are part of a job and you have to do them. But then it's refining and knowing for, say, the next opportunity or the next job or the next role. Okay, I don't want to focus on that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I really want to lean into X, Y, Z. And that can also, I feel, feel like, help optimize burnout if you're not continually partaking in aspects of your design practice that don't truly light you up. Yeah. One thing that I used to do was to ask myself at the end of every day, like, how was, how was my day? Did it leave me happy and energized or was I depleted? And that cultivating that awareness, you know, that trying to self-reflect, I, I was able to learn a lot about myself. As I started to explore a possible career in venture capital, that daily practice of reflection really helped me, made me more aware of what kind of role exactly did I want to play in venture capital? Because I quickly understood these activities make me really happy and these activities I just don't want to spend time doing. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's good to to reflect on that every day. Like what what has given you energy and what has been depleting. I will also say, like I think this idea of like burnout and showing up made me think about the many roles that we play, especially as women who become like working mothers. I think it's so hard because you want to show up for everyone. And there's so many people who depend on you and you want to spend time with all these people. You lose the children, the partner, friends, work colleagues, and we all want to do a great job. And we're all responsible for so many things. Like there's some things that I have to do that I cannot delegate to other people, especially as the children get older, like they need the emotional support. You can hire a nanny, to take them to the park and put them down for a nap and change their diapers. But as they get older and they're starting to discover who they are as human beings, they need a lot more emotional support. Like they need a parent, like that's not something you can outsource. And so the demands on one's time is really, it's very true and real. And it's, it's so hard to be everywhere all at once. And especially hard, it may feel selfish to take care of oneself before being available to others. I personally felt like as much as I was trying to be there for everyone, I was not fully present with everyone unless I took care of myself first. And so while it meant that the quantity of time that I spent with key people in my life was less in order for me to make time for myself, the quality of the time spent with those people was much greater because I was actually present with them. That story reminded me of when I when I was applying to be a designer at Google and was going through the I was in the portfolio process or the design project phase and uh, I wanted the job so bad. <laughs> and so I went like a 200% above and beyond of like everything that was asked for and expected and And I remember I was, (laughs) my friends are going to laugh when they listen to this. We were in Costco and I was just not present at all. And I was so stressed. I was like, I should be working. I should be 
I should be working on my portfolio. I should be doing this. I should be doing this. And they sat me down on the couch at Costco <laughs> and was like, Rach, you need to be present. Like, if you want to go work on that, go work on that. But if you want to be here, be here. And that little, just tiny, like, thank you, Costco. But that little mm-hmm. conversation just was such a big shift for me in uh, how I show up in terms of being present to what is. And with all the different things pulling at us in a variety of different ways, presence is really all of that <laughs> that we have. What role does a tidy space uh, play in affording creativity? Have there been any studies to prove this out? It feels like it makes a difference. <laughs> yeah, actually, there was a study done on looking at does keeping a messy desk make people more creative? <laughs> and I think the answer was that a messy environment does actually make people more creative. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I personally think you should do what works best for you. Like I have historically been a pretty neat and tidy and organized person. And, you know, especially in the kitchen, like I need to have the kitchen reset every night in order for me to be able to do my work the next day in terms of making meals in terms of my workspace. Like if it's a horizontal surface, I probably have something on it. Um, but when I learned about the study that was published in 2013, I, I decided I should never ask my daughter to clean her desk because she actually is probably more creative with her messy desk. It probably fuels her. But I, I personally think that if you really want to be creative, you should just take yourself out of your workspace. You should go take a walk, you know, take yourself out of context, go into nature, gaze at long views exercise your peripheral vision. Those are some of the best things that you can do for your creativity. And don't worry about whether your space is tidy or messy. Yeah. Yeah. Plus one to doing whatever works for you. And I've, I've noticed at least for me, there's depending on there's certain times of the month when I'm very clean. And then there's other parts where I'm a little more like messy and fluid and, and all of that. And just honoring that ebb and flow. So next question is, for those interested in becoming a design partner at a VC firm, what career advice might you have? And could you share how you ended up at, as a design partner at Coastal Ventures? Yeah. So first, I will say that there are not many job opportunities like this, like being a designer in a venture capital firm. Like I just don't think it's a very common job. And so I always tell people one should never set their sights on that being their whole career ambition <laughs> because there just aren't that many. And when I, I wrote a, a book a few years ago called Design and Venture Capital, which is published through O'Reilly, and it's an ebook. So if you Google it, you can find it. But I interviewed many of my counterparts at VC firms to understand what were they doing at those firms and how did they get those jobs? And no one ever responded to like a job posting saying, we're hiring a design partner, come apply here. It never happens that way. So that's the first thing you should know is like, if you really want to work in venture capital, you should like network like crazy and get to know some venture capitalists because that's really how everybody got their job. I actually did get recruited by a a headhunter, but I was the only one out of everybody that I talked to. For everyone else, it was just sort of like, They knew someone at a VC firm and they were hanging out and the VC firm thought, oh, you know, we could probably use somebody like you. And once they understood what that designer had to offer and there was some 
synthesis around like what that person had to offer and how they might be able to help the firm. And it's, it's a different set of expectations and needs for every firm, which is why there's no canonical job description for this kind of role. It's really like all the people who kind of work in a role like this, they've built up some amount of experience and an offering that is useful to the firm and or the portfolio companies. So whatever that is. So like for me, I had built these design organizations at rapidly growing companies. And these companies all had products that spanned desktop and mobile and consumer and B2B. Like there's this whole range. And so there was a broad offering that could apply to a a broad range of companies in a portfolio. And during the time that I was hired, there were a lot of questions that entrepreneurs had around like, how do I make design successful within my organization? How do you find a good designer? How do you know a good one when you see one? How do I set them up for success? Blah, blah, blah. And um, these were all issues that I had dealt with firsthand. And so that's what made me very interesting as a design partner. And then moreover, my boss, the node, is very explicit about wanting the operating partners to teach the companies how to fish and not do the fishing for them, which is in sharp contrast to, for example, the early days of Google Ventures, where my former colleague, Braden Coetz, went. He was the first designer there. When he started out, he was actually doing a lot of the design work for the portfolio companies. And so as I was thinking about leaving Google you know, I actually thought about joining Google Ventures, but it was not a fit at the time because I was not hands-on designer at that time. But but GV wanted more hands-on people. You know, another example is like when John Maida joined Kleiner Perkins. John uh, was not hands-on and he did not have a lot of operating experience as a design leader or whatever, but he was a very prominent public figure who would go on Bloomberg News and talk about design make good design makes good business. And so that was something that Kleiner was really interested in having on their team. And that was the role that he played. And that's unique to him because that's who John is. James Buckhouse over at Sequoia, he is a Marcom guy. He worked on Shrek. He was at Twitter and he's a storyteller. He was hired into Sequoia primarily to work on decks for the partners and, and to work on internal marketing and communications design needs. And I remember having conversations with him where he was like, how do I do more work with portfolio companies? And I was like, you know, just find one portfolio company where you can add value to them. Use this as a case study, show it to your partners, show that design actually improves the company's performance, actually makes them successful. And then they will buy into this notion that you should be spending more time with the portfolio companies, which is exactly what happened. He did a project with DoorDash and DoorDash is a company that Sequoia and Coastal Ventures both share. And I think as a result, he was able to start like a little design studio inside Sequoia where he hires very junior designers. He mentors them. Those designers do work for the portfolio companies. And the hope is that they kind of graduate and maybe join a portfolio company full-time as a designer. So he's running a little studio inside Sequoia. And that's not because Sequoia hired him to do that. It's just something he wanted to do once he was inside Sequoia, hired to do a different job. 
And I, in contrast, don't want to manage people anymore. <laughs> I don't want to run a design studio. And so I have deliberately not done that at Coastal Ventures. So like the job is naturally ambiguous. It's yours to define. And it's really about finding the best intersection between what you have to offer and what you're interested in and what the firm or the portfolios need from, from you. And so it's, it's the kind of thing where you, you go into it once you've amassed some degree of experience. And that's, it's, I don't think of it as the kind of job that, you know, if you're early in your career, like in your 20s, and think that this might be something interesting to do one day, it's not like you can take deliberate steps to move in that direction. And I would never advise people to do that because they're just such few opportunities. You know, when you're advising companies, you are teaching people what you already know. And it can be very solitary. You're not necessarily working with a team to make something. You're, I kind of describe it as being a grandparent. <laughs> like you kind of weigh in, you play with them, but at the end of the day, you give them back and you don't take home any of the operating stress. Um, so the flip side is that I, it's a pretty lonely job in that I'm, I don't have a team that I'm working with actively to make stuff. It's a very liminal role where I am working through others to make sure that good work happens. And so it's not for everyone. For the people who are in this role right now in this industry, I would say that we have all kind of reached some level or stage in life where this is the right thing for us now. But it's not something we had ever decided, you know, 10 years ago that we would ever do. It just sort of, it just sort of happened. And I feel like it goes back to, I feel like we keep going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of you sharing of how following your joy and using that curiosity of, okay, let's allow my career path to unfold as it may be and not being so, okay, I need to go to here, to here, to here, to here, Mm -hmm. but just listening and being honest with yourself of, okay, that's interesting. I'm going to try that. Okay. I'm going to try this. And then maybe that will end up as being a design partner and beautiful (laughs) if if it is. And if not, then you're also finding something that is a better fit for how your own path is unfolding. Yeah. You know, career paths, I think are rarely linear you know, they might look like this. And I think that's usually the case if you're really, truly trying to learn and put yourself outside of your comfort zone. There will be times when you're like this, when you know what you're doing and you're growing and advancing. And there'll be times when you're like this because you're starting at the beginning and you're just learning something that you've never been exposed to before. So like when I was around the time when I was looking to leave Google, I had this notion that, so I was getting a lot of inquiries from entrepreneurs and from former executives I had worked with that were starting companies. And they were all asking me to meet with them over coffee so that I could give them some advice about design in their startup or whatever. And I realized that the sum of all those coffee dates was probably, you know, worth something because I was giving so much advice. It was a lot of my time and I should not be doing this for free. And so I thought, well, maybe there's a role for me in venture capital so that I could work with a portfolio of startups and actively give this advice and get paid to do that. So I went around all the VC firms at Sand Hill Road and pitched them my idea and also sought to understand what they were looking for, what they needed, what their portfolio companies needed. 
And many of them were intrigued. But honestly, at that time in 2012, I was not sure that I would enjoy working in venture capital. I felt like it was very, there were no women. And every VC firm that I walked into, it was like walking onto the set of Mad Men, where everybody was a man. And the only women that were around were uh, administrative assistants. And so I definitely got that vibe. And that's a big reason why I did not join any VC firm in 2012. The other thing too, is that I wasn't sure. So at the time, my hypothesis was not only could I help the portfolio companies, but I could perhaps use design as a lens through which to vet potential startups to invest in. And because I didn't understand the difference between operating partner and investing partner, I just thought it was all the same thing. So I was interested or I was curious about investing. But when you join a, a VC firm, it is a commitment. I mean, it's like getting married because it can take seven to 10 years for a fund to pay out. So if you join a VC firm, you're basically signing up for like 10 years. And I wasn't sure if that was a culture or an environment or the type of work that I wanted to do. So I prototyped that for myself and signed on as an entrepreneur in residence at Trinity Ventures. And EIR roles are structured very differently across VC firms. So like at Sequoia, they're unpaid, they're indefinite. At Trinity, it's fixed three months and it's paid. So um, I could sit in on any pitch meeting. I sat in on the Monday deal review meetings. And I learned a lot during that time because I could, I was prototyping what it was like for myself to be in a VC firm. And I was asking myself at the end of every day, how did I feel? Did this feed me or not? And what I learned about myself was I hated investing (laughs) because I'm a natural introvert. But when you're an investor, you're like going out and you're networking and you're trying to get deal flow. You're trying to get an entrepreneurs to talk to you. And then once they're in the door, you're just spending all of your time during the day listening to pitches. And 99% of the time, you're telling them, no, you're not going to invest in them. And to me, it just felt like it was not generative enough. It wasn't creative enough. I wasn't making anything. And it wasn't bringing me joy. And so I learned a lot about myself during that three-month prototyping period, which was that I didn't want to be an investor. Um, So I actually walked away from venture capital opportunities in 2012. And concurrent to all of this, on my last day at work at Google, I got recruited by Sebastian Thrun to go join him at Udacity. And I was like, no, no, I don't want to take a full-time job. And he's like, oh, just come consult for us one day a week. You'll have a lot of fun. And I only agreed to it because his office was two blocks from my house, two blocks from the yoga studio where I taught. And so it was a convenient triangle that I could run between uh, throughout the day. And it was only 20 people at the time, and I was the only designer. And so I went from running a team of like 350 people at Google, being the head of design for all of Google, to just being lone designer at the startup that uh, most people had not heard of. And so to an outsider, it might look like I was my career was looking like this, but I was just following my curiosity and, and my heart. I was really intrigued by this idea of democratizing higher education and bringing it online and imagining the future of higher education. And Sebastian is just such a wonderful person and great to work with. So I I just wanted to be in his orbit. And what is interesting about that time, so consulting one day a week eventually turned into a full-time job because I ended up spending all my time there and less and less time at Trinity. And that's just because that's what my heart wanted. I was fueled by you know, making something again. And it was energizing to be a hands-on designer once again. And, uh, and 
what I did not expect was that that startup experience actually prepared me for venture capital even more so than just Netscape, Yahoo, and Google. Because being inside a 20-person startup and living through that whole experience of like finding product market fit and like not having clear priorities and having so many different business opportunities for the company come our way and having to say no to ones even though they were interesting really took a lot of discipline. It made me stronger as a designer and a design leader, which prepped me for a role in VC, even though I wasn't looking for that. Once we found product market fit, the task at hand was to build out a design organization, build out the product. And that's something I had done many times over at Yahoo and Google. And so I didn't feel like it was giving me joy or or that I was learning and growing anymore. So I just quit. And three weeks later, Vinod called me and he said, now are you ready to join me? (laughs) And I was. So, you know, nothing was deliberate. It wasn't premeditated or planned. I was just following my heart. And it wasn't like I was interested in the biggest organization that I could run or the loftiest title. Like I've never cared about title or how many people I manage or anything like that. It's always been about learning and growing and having fun. And that's really what led me to here. It's just the sum of all the experiences that I collected kind of prepared me for the next step. So, and I'm finding now I'm again in new territory. Um, I started teaching product design at Stanford this quarter. And, you know, it's a new adventure yet again. But I also feel like the sum of all those past experiences have kind of prepared me for this, which is fun. Thank you for sharing your story. And I feel inspired. I don't, I feel like everyone else listening also is feeling inspired. I want to be mindful of our time and we're just a bit over. So first, Irene, I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your wisdom. And it's been a pleasure to get to know you a bit better. And thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for joining us today. That wraps up another episode of Design to Be Conversation. Thanks so much for listening. If you are curious for more ways to invest in your EQ, to be a more empowered, educated, and effective designer, head over to designtobe.com. That is D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E.com. You can take our design process EQ quiz or sign up for a newsletter to receive the latest Design to Be community building, live offerings, and self-inquiry guidance directly to your inbox. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you may listen. Be sure to share this podcast with a fellow designer who's interested in investing in their EQ. And again, thanks so much for listening. 